Make a move it, then she'll call him. Forest fires, Google's ballin'. Take a chance and roll the dice one day. If you're a DM player, find you. Millennials can join this quest too. Expedition, we're gonna find a way. So it is my great pleasure to introduce someone to the podcast who um, I've been a big fan of for a while now. And Jim Wampler has done me the great honor of joining me this morning on Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks. And we're going to just have a general chat really about his career in gaming. So, so Jim is a, an artist, a designer, a writer, a podcaster. And uh, so he tells me he'll, he'll also be first in line to have his mind uploaded to the singularity. Um, when we get there, which is which is comforting <laughs> to know, I, I I believe that everyone should live by their by their principles, and, and that seems to be very much uh, um, the theme around a lot of your work. So I'm glad you're buying into it fully. Now, please uh, flesh that out a bit for the listeners. I'm sure most of them know who you are, but it would be good to to maybe get some meat on on those very bare bones. Oh well, first of all, thank you for uh, having me on. It's an honor. Uh, I'm. You know, I'm I'm like the Mandalorian. I'm just a guy trying to get through this universe. Um, uh, I my resume looks like I'm a pathological liar because whatever I get interested in, I will focus on like a laser until I kill it or it kills me. Um, but yes, uh, started out as an artist, became a writer, then got into publishing, uh, then got into game publishing. Uh, started playing uh, D and D in 1979. So kind of, you know, first generation and a half, I was taught by guys who uh, DM'd with just a stack of the brown books and whatever AD&D books that came out and a bunch of magazines and goofy stuff on the side. Hmm. Hmm. No, that's wonderful. And and the thing that, um, you know, I suppose you're best known for, and we'll go into all of this in a bit of detail during the talk, but um, I guess the, probably the two things you're best known for, I would hazard a guess are Marvin the Mage and mutant crawl classics would that be would that be a reasonable um you know supposition uh, or am i missing sure. something <laughs> no 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 um you know i i spent a lot of years trying stuff and it and it not working or semi working but uh mutant crawl classics is the game i've wanted to write for you know 30 years and when dungeon crawl classics came out uh, me and my gaming group uh, glommed onto it immediately. And uh, in particular, what I experienced with Dungeon Crawl Classics was that same feeling I had when I was first introduced to D&D, where I enjoyed it so much I wanted to evangelize it. So uh, uh, some friends of mine and I started the uh, DCC podcast Spellburn, which none mm-hmm. of us are currently on, but it's still going. And uh, in the middle of all that, just my favorite, second favorite game after D&D was always Gamma World. And I saw the, the, the fit to take uh, the genius of what Joseph Goodman had done and apply it to a mashup of Gamma World. And I wasn't the only one that had the idea. A bunch of us had it all at once, but uh, I was able to uh, uh, do what I do and convince Joseph that it was a, a good uh, a good buy. And uh, he hired me to write it and I wrote it and uh, couldn't be prouder of it. Yeah, and uh, absolutely, you should be. I, I think it's a wonderful game. I've played, a, I've run it quite a lot. I've run it with home groups at conventions. It, it always goes down well, and um, we can obviously talk about that in a lot more detail later. Um, I'm a huge fan of it, actually. Well, that's um, what it's really all about. Nothing makes me happier than just walking into a con and seeing people play the game. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I nothing better than 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 running a, an MCC funnel and just 
killing off all their characters. That's, that's one of my favorite <laughs> things. And seeing the look on their faces when that happens to them, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> no, there's no sadism at all involved in this. It's just pure fun, of course. Um, now, um, uh, your most recent thing, and something that I um, wasn't aware of until probably a couple of weeks ago when we, 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 we were sending some messages, is, is your Kickstarter Scientific Barbarian. Is that, is that based around MCC or is it just sort of adjacent? Uh, well, it's intended to be general post-apocalyptic and will obviously work with any D20-based system. And uh, because uh, my particular gaming style and taste is genre mash, it's uh, intended to be marketed as a, hey, you know, you fantasy players can come in too, because it's nothing better in a medieval fantasy game than finding out that magic wand was a linear particle accelerator. Mm. You know, that stuff was in all the old D&D. Gary Gygax and Jim Ward used to do that stuff way back in the day when I was a kid. So just carrying on the tradition. But yes, uh, Mud Puppy Games is my uh, own publishing label, um, which uh, I've had since around 2005. And I have just been uh, very happy doing my own stuff. And it's does it support MCC? Absolutely, it does, and and it is intended to. But uh, it's not just uh, MCC. It would be good in Gamma World or any of the myriad uh, post-apocalyptic games, or your you know genre mash fantasy game. Wonderful, and it, and it's a periodical, is it, or is it um, just a kind of a series of books? It's be... Um, it's a fanzine, although it'll be in a very deluxe format, like Squarebound. So it'll stand each issue will stand on your shelf with the rest of your digest size game books. Um, and I, you know, I wish I could take uh, credit for there being some big master plan. It's, uh, it's like a lot of things I do. It's just something I always wanted to do, so I did it. And the Kickstarter has uh, ballooned up so uh, well with the response that uh, I can foresee now I've created my own monster and it will have yep. to be a uh, regular publication. <laughs> I, I think it will. Um, I, I have backed it as well, um, you know, full disclosure. Um, and um, I am really <coughs> excited to, to get a look at it when it, um, I, I, I guess, probably, what, back end of the year, you think, or um, before then? What's your, what's your, when, when will it, when will backers actually have it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, should be this fall. The uh, delivery date is October, and three Kickstarters in so far have been on time or early with all of them. So that's well, October is pretty solid. Wonderful. Well, of course, I'll put a link uh, to the Kickstarter in in the show notes. And uh, I don't want to taunt the gods or anything. You never, <laughs> you never know. But my record's pretty good at this point. Yeah, no, that, that's great. There's quite a lot of fanzine um, fanzine activity going around uh, the game. You know, there was uh, obviously there's the. Uh, um, there's a big thing that Kickstarter does. I, I think every year, don't they? When they they get a lot of fanzines. It, I think it's great because it it's kind of um, it's this very uh, it's partially this nostalgic thing that we we all remember that kind of homemade kind of feel about the game products mm-hmm. that we had before they became, I guess, too uh, too standardized. And and what you said I think is interesting about how um, science fiction and, and fantasy were very much blended together in the early games because I, I think over time they became a bit like isolated or, you know, like um, separated uh, thematically. People didn't really, you know, wanted to be very much purist in a way. And I think it's great that we're going back to that to that concept because it is at the heart of D&D, really, if you, if you look at it in any depth. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a, a mature gamer at this point in my career and uh many of my peers love to just talk about everything that's wrong and not like the good old days i'm on my own frequency because i think this is probably the best time to be a tabletop role player gamer ever is this moment right now because the technology has given um, individuals the ability to do what once took an entire company to produce 
you know, mm. print on demand, drive through RPG, everybody can get in there and it's just an embarrassment of riches. Like I have no no truck with the edition wars and you know, the flame wars over this or that because it's there's never been more different diverse content out there. Whatever your jam is, you can go find it and play it and, and you have the tools to make it yourself if you want to. Yeah. No, I I agree and I I feel um privileged in a way that that I or, or or lucky I would say because um I actually had this enormous gap in my gaming life um between the ages of um uh, let me try and get this straight probably between the ages of about 16 and and 45 I didn't play for 30 years <laughs> and wow. so I, yeah and and um but it was hu- a huge passion of mine when I was a kid but then I kind of I stopped um maybe played one or two more games in my later teens but that was about it and then and then coming back um just becoming somehow aware that there was a new edition of D&D coming out because I didn't read anything about gaming for a long, long time. And, and then and then it just kind of, this voice at the back of my head saying, you know, you used to really love that. Why don't you just, it sounds kind of fun. Why don't you check it out? And so I, I bought the fifth edition starter set and, and that was it. I was just sucked in again. And <laughs> and now I'm, I'm, I'm doing a podcast. I play, um, I'm running like five or six games a week. I've got gaming groups all over the States. Um, it's it's become a huge part of my life again. But You're, but, you're cracking me up because I was just sitting here saying that I don't have any truck with edition wars. But then in my head, when you said that, I went, oh, 5e, you picked the right time to come back because 4e was kind of lame <laughs> but you know it, 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 I, I think in the last five years and probably you could say the last 15 years now that I've understood a bit of the of the evolution there has been this amazing flowering and diversity of types of games out there and ways of playing and you know uh, things that have opened my eyes um hugely to 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 really different ways of playing and how you can enjoy you know role-playing games it's not this u- unified experience it's very different from game to game and system to system and um yeah it's it's been a great <laughs> it's been wonderful um, i mean you, you know my favorite thing on earth is running a con game with uh kids that show up Mm. maybe even so young they have to be there with their parents and you know i've i've got 40 years of gaming you know in my thinking in my brain and this you know 12 year old comes up with some genius idea that completely flummoxes what i've laid out for the table i love that that's fantastic that that's um, how i i keep my sword sharp yeah yeah no it's funny you should say that because um i i, I live in oakland in california and, and dundracon is very nearby which i'm sure you you you've heard of because it's one of the yes. first gaming conventions and um and it was just i didn't realize that it was 40 odd years old um but it was wonderful to go there and i ran mcc for a group of kids and <laughs> they loved it they they really loved it um so um well done you've created something that that that, that is very approachable um and talking about kids and talking about origin stories, um, why don't you why don't you tell me a bit about your origin story? Because everyone loves hearing them. Just just a bit of context. When this this podcast initially, I started it as as a kind of look back at my gaming history, prehistory even, and 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 then tying it into what I now do today in in in, in my gaming. And um, you know, obviously, there's a big call out to um, the 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 classic Gygax adventure expedition to the Barrier Peaks, which I know that you particularly like. So um, wh- uh, why, don't you, um, why don't you just at least give a bit of a, as much as you can, explain how to me and, and to the listeners how, how you discovered gaming and, and what your early years were like. Uh, sure, uh, especially because it'll kind of stitch things together. Uh, people that only know me from, say, the last 10 years, uh, particularly uh, industry people, are sometimes uh, puzzled at, 
the things I seemed to know. Like Joe, Joe Goodman <laughs> had me, I, we were, Joseph Goodman had a bunch of us out for a creative retreat in your neck of the woods, San Diego. And uh, right. we all had our turn in the car with Joe. And one day he just turned around and how do you know, blah, blah, blah. And how do you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was funny. But uh, yeah, so um, I grew up in a very uh, small rural town in Kentucky and uh, uh, often lament that D&D had not penetrated our uh, tiny town when I was in high school. I had to go to college to find it in 79 and uh, met some uh, upperclassmen who showed me the ropes and my first DMs and just was swept away. And uh, the, uh, the cool part of the story is that allowed me then to participate in introducing D&D to Frankfort, Kentucky, because that Christmas I got my brother the Holmes box set. He went and started running it at his high school. A year later, some kid that's playing in his game has a grandmother that runs a, a yarn shop downtown called the Busy Bee, and he talks her into starting to carry the TSR books and Dragon Magazine and Grenadier Miniatures. Amazing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't want to take, oh, I'm not trying to take sole credit, but it was just great to be a part of those that process. So, um, very early on in that time in the early 80s you know I was always a cartoonist and an artist and I had big ambitions so uh, one of my DMs was a writer I could do art and we just started making the rounds trying to get our stuff published um, with minor successes I mean they're 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 cool now but they weren't all that all that then Um, the two of us uh, had uh, some uh, articles and art published in Judges Guild's old Pegasus magazine And around 81 or so, uh, Tim Kask had uh, left TSR, and he moved to Cincinnati, which was just 100 miles up the road from us, to start Adventure Gaming Magazine in the Ralpartha offices. And we had already been in the habit of driving up there about once a month, because Ralpartha on Saturdays would sell you minis by uh, lead weight right out of the warehouse. So we started making trips and hassling, you know, poor Tim Kask to... uh, publish our stuff and he did he published a few things and that would have technically been the first appearance of marvin the mage even though it was a ridiculously tiny little single panel cartoon well you know that has to, it has to start somewhere uh, so is, is this um post tsr for tim yes yes yeah yeah because um, he was one of the early um kind of uh crew there wasn't he in the mid 70s i believe yeah uh first uh full-time employee uh, he started with them in 75 and uh, up through about 81 when he uh, left them and uh, stopped being the editor of Dragon Magazine. So he just moved to Cincinnati to start a new magazine and it was uh, called Adventure Gaming. And it was a wonderful magazine. There were just marketing timing issues and things that I think probably killed it a couple of years in. Mm. I'd, I'd never heard of either of those and, and maybe we just never got them in the UK. Um, I imagine we probably did get Pegasus though. We got a lot of Judges Guild products, um, but maybe not. I mean, for me, it was it was... White Dwarf was obviously that was the British magazine, and of course Dragon, which we got on imports, and they were quite expensive and um, but very enticing, and and it was kind of an, you know very frustrating because all the ads in the back for, for for stuff that you would need to get posted from the US, of course, it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my God, I've got a couple of uh, UK guys on my ass right now because I can't ship. Uh, any of my kickstarters outside the u.s and yeah. if there was some way i could figure out to do it that didn't cost more than the cost of the book itself I, i'd be all over it and i'm working on it i'm, I'm gonna you know i get determined and bullheaded you know, um, old, old kentucky boy but anyway uh yeah no no i mean we're kind of we are we are the society is in some weird little ways breaking down and we're we're, we're kind of living through the most boring apocalypse on imaginable i suppose you could say but um but um uh, no, no, it is funny. I, I held my book up to my nephews and said, hey, you want to know how to get through this? Your Uncle Jim wrote a whole book about how to do that. Here you go. 
<laughs> yeah. Fortunately, there aren't like two-headed people wandering around quite yet, but who knows? knows? Yeah, I'm glad you said yet. That's, yeah. That's, that's, that's more accurate. <laughs> but um, it's So that's actually how I met Tim Kask, who is, you know, an adopted right. uncle and, and kith and clan now. But uh, yeah. I, I had met him briefly at some of the local conventions and through Adventure Game Magazine back in the day. And then I, I went through a phase similar to what you talked about, just not as long. We were gaming ourselves, but I uh, focused on other, you know, life things. Uh, I got married. I got divorced. I went back to college for real to get an art degree. Mm. Um, one point, uh, my writer buddy and I, 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 it took me a long time to figure out I was a capable mm. enough writer to do it professionally. So we did a version of Marvin the Mage and sent it to Roger Moore at Dragon Magazine and got rejected, and we should have been. It was a ridiculous proposal. It wasn't that funny. Um, no offense to my co-author, but in part because he, my jokes were better than his. <laughs> um, and, you know, a little, little where I would tap back in, but uh, then, you know, just life went the way it went. Uh, in the uh, early 2000s, uh, my brother and I uh, got together. I, I was in tech startups from the early 90s on. Uh-huh. Second Internet happened. And in the early uh, 2000s, my brother and I decided to do a tech startup together, got some funding, and got very swept up in that. But there was, there was a time around 2004, 2005, where we had some uh, you know stupid tech startup money in our pockets. And uh, I was right there going, you know what we need to do? We need to start our own game publishing company. And we started looking around, thinking about that. And um, that's how Mud Puppy Games happened uh, originally. About that same time, Jim Ward was shopping uh, the fourth edition of Metamorphosis Alpha, looking for angel investors, so we ponied up and uh, published that book. Uh, a little... Uh, do you read Knights at Dinner Table? Yes, yes. So um, my my dog, the role-playing game, was a small game, sci-fi miniatures game called Galacta. It was based on an old heritage game. Uh, all right there in the mid-2000s, and some close calls. There was a point uh, where Kinzer and I agreed on me writing a space hack, but we fell out over royalties. And uh, so we so we published Metamorphosis Alpha 4th Edition, but uh, because of the print run, the monstrous print run we did, and, you know, not the best sales, uh, just lost 20 grand like that. And mm. went, okay, that's that's enough of that. And... Yeah. Uh, when it's your oddly own, enough, when it's your own money, um, I, I, the pain must you know losing someone else's money is maybe one thing, but when it's in your pocket or, and yeah, and it's coming out of your pocket, that's oh, we lost plenty of other people's money in okay. the startup. Trust me, trust <laughs> me, an embarrassing amount, but uh, yeah, um, but you know, so uh, but that that got my uh, that, that got the taste back in my mouth for wanting to do all this stuff again, and uh, when. Uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics was published. I was just coming back from one of those gaming layoffs looking for a new uh, system to play. Um, 5e hadn't come out yet. Between my brother and nephews, we'd played every edition, so we gave 4th edition a try, and my nephews were in high school at that time, and them and their high school buddies had a fantastic time with it. I couldn't uh, deal with it taking three hours to kill eight kobolds. (laughs) (laughs) I I, have never even seen a book in 4th edition, and you know, there are still there are some quite passionate fans of it still around who still declare it to be a very good tactical miniatures game, and it probably is if you're into that kind of thing. And I can understand why a high school kid would be into that because I used to love all that crunchy number number crunching and and all that kind of tables and all that stuff in the. In oh the, right, in the you know, when I was a guide. teenager, the rule system couldn't be too crunchy for me. And uh, yeah. I, I know what my nephews got out of it because uh, it was a tactical minis uh, role playing game, and it was uh, very full of the aesthetic of. Um, online role-playing games mm, of course yeah 
Can I just wind back to something you said because it just really sure. it really tickled me about about um, your friend's mother um, carrying some RPG books in in her in her yarn store. I that just <laughs> that just resonates because just think about that now. How insane would that be now? If someone with a little yarn shop in a in a small town in 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 the Midwest just just tries to sell RPG books as well. But back then it was perfectly um, normal. Well, not normal, but it was like yeah, no one would think twice about that. Because, well. It was a pretty good side hustle for her. She made yeah. some she made some decent coin off of it and uh, kept a bunch of redneck kids off the street and out of trouble. And it was pre-satanic panic, so nobody thought anything about it. Yeah. Um, the, the reason it made me laugh is that I, exactly the same thing. Um, I, I experienced exactly the same thing. Some kid at school was obviously really into D&D. His mum had a, a small clothing shop, and he obviously persuaded her to sell. So I would occasionally go in, and they'd only have like, you know, a dozen books kind of obscure, like just ran, seemingly randomly chosen D&D books. But it was always nice to go in and just, just somehow sense that what we were doing was 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 kind of permeating, at least in some ways. Um why we were uh <laughs> i mean you know we were pretty wild kids and so my mother was perfectly happy all of us in the kitchen table for hours at a time and she knew what we were doing that was great by her mm. yeah that, that i think that was definitely a good thing to keep us keep us indoors although i, I there, there there were plenty of dice throwing incidents i seem to remember at people's heads that seemed to be the the, the, the default response if you were um, pissed off at, at, the, at the DM, the dice would go flying. But, you know, I guess it's better than better than a rock. <laughs> I, I like to think I'm so much older and more mature now, and it's only been a few a couple of three years ago I got screwed so bad in the middle of a, a, a game by a, a bad roll that I threw my D20 out the door and almost hit a customer at the game door <laughs> right in the head as he was coming in. Yeah, we never, we never really ever grow up. Um, so... So um, tell me a bit about Marvin the Mage then. You said you started with, with those little strips. In. Now, now am I, I'm trying to, I seem to remember um, that it, you did, you, did you get it published in Dragon Magazine eventually? Or you were saying no, you got it no, rejected? No, okay, no, okay, no. right. But. The, the reputation for Marvin the Mage is overblown and a lot of just my marketing um, appeared, you know, unnoticed uh, completely in Adventure Gaming Magazine. Um, there was a failed, a rejected Dragon submission and uh, the way I got back into gaming this last time was uh, just uh, a, a confluence of coincidences. Just as Gary Khan was starting, um, I uh, hit a, my brother and I's tech startup had been stolen out from under us uh, by Coca-Cola and Clear Channel, which if you're going to get your, your stuff stolen, that's, that's okay. You can at least say that's what it took. Wow. And, uh, you know, we both went through a downturn. And so I was basically unemployed with nothing to do for a while. And I'm like, I know what. I'll get back into gaming, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring back Marvin the Mage and do it as a webcomic. Yeah, so, but it uh, obviously got it got it got, it got uh, it's it's known, so you know it's a good. It, it obviously did hit hit um, hit the right spot, but um, you know, obviously you've done a lot of different creative endeavors. Um, art must have been your, I guess, your passion when when you were growing up, and and it became your first creative endeavor by the sound of it. What? I actually studied art as well, although I, you know, the only things I draw now are, are um, dragons and giants for my daughter, my four-year-old daughter who's obsessed with with monsters from the from D and D. What what um, what was the transition like? Do you, I noticed that you don't you haven't you didn't do the art for Music Crawl Classics um, as, as I understand it. And I, I guess you're not doing the art for for your more recent things. Is that do you need to keep the two things separate, or do you ever want to 
do the whole oh, thing. Oh, no, yourself. no, no, no. I just did them interactively for my last update because uh, I needed to show uh, a monster that was going to be in the new magazine. And what I, I and this weekend, I'm sitting around going, okay, I just need somebody to hack this out and do it for free fast because I've got to put it in the update on Monday. Uh, and my brain goes through the roll decks. Okay, who do I know who's a hack artist who, work, who will work for free? And then I remembered, oh, wait, I'm a hack artist and I work, <laughs> I'm free. <laughs> And did it myself, but uh. <laughs> that's excellent. Um, but did you kind of mentally make this shift from being an artist to a writer? Did you say to yourself, "Okay, I'm now going to be a writer. That's what I'm going to focus on, and the art's going to just step into the background"? Or you know, maybe uh, how did that process come about? It's uh, it's several things. It's 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 a fair question, and it's several things. One of them is uh, pure uh, economics and 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 money. You know, I can write a book faster than I can illustrate it. Um, and, uh, I don't, you know, I, I have a very accurate view of my personal art abilities and it's much easier producing a book to uh, go find much better artists than I am to, to do them. And I'm an excellent editor and art director, if I say so myself, cause I just <laughs> art, well, you know, when you've been art directed the wrong way a lot, you just don't do that. You art direct people the way you always wanted to be art directed. Yeah. It's how I do it. But, uh. I, I wonder whether it can be um, a bit a bit of a double-edged sword in a way, being an artist who is an art director, because, sorry, my, my dog is barking and my daughter just rang on the doorbell, but I'm not going to have to get it because the door is not locked. Um, <laughs> they, will, they, will, uh, they will stop making noise in a minute. But, um, they'll, you know, they'll make it, that artifact check. Yeah. <laughs> in a way, it's a, um, it's a, it might be seen as a bit of a double-edged sword because, because, um, because you're an artist as well, that somehow... Um, trying to trying to shape another artist's work might be quite awkward in a way or you know um not as not as detached criticism as it would be if it, if it was coming from a, an art editor who wasn't an artist like do you ever feel yourself in a bit of a kind of awkward place when you're trying to tell an artist what to do yourself or, or well not? the people you should ask are the artists that have done art for me because <laughs> they're the ones that'll tell you the truth but from uh, from my side i just uh try and stay aware because I am, I'm very aware that every, I mean, let's face it, between writers and artists, we're the crazy ones. We're the highest maintenance, we're the most peculiar. And I just uh, approach every artist as an individual. And it's only awkward when I first started working with somebody I haven't worked with yet, because I don't understand the kind of direction they need, because uh, they come in all flavors. Uh, an excellent example is uh, Doug Kovacs, who's done so much work for mm. Goodman Games. Doug does his best work when you uh, ask him to do a drawing and then cut him completely loose to do whatever he damn well pleases and then you thank him at the end when he brings back great work. So there's very little art direction needed or uh, in Doug's case it's even possible but as long as you understand the deal you can get great work out of him just by letting Doug be Doug. You know mm. that's that's one extreme. Um, some uh, other artists uh, you know need uh, a verbal description includes all the important stuff um that, that's the middle area uh, i adore each one of these uh mud puppy kickstarter projects i'm doing when it's just me and i can do whatever i want i make a point to every book uh, go and recruit some fresh talent some people that are new or trying to break in and that's interesting because that's a different level of art direction because you've got to uh it's it's no different than when you're running a convention game and you have no control over who shows up at your table you can get all kinds of players you know you can get some cowboys that need settling down. You, you can get some kids, you can get some great players and you can get some, uh, it's all about them players. And you've got to, as a DM, 
figure out how to juggle that Mardi Gras riot in a way where the most people have the most fun. Mm -hmm. um, and do you sometimes find yourself being frustrated that an artist isn't able to execute the vision that you have? Because that, that, of course, happens, you know, when it's just, you know, that's just not what they do. And you're, you're almost trying to get them to fit into something. That, I mean, you said yourself, you have to be sensitive to, to the way they work. But at the same time, we all have our taste and our desires for how something's going to come out. Um, you know, as in my day job, I, I well, um, I'm not currently working, but when, when, when I am, um, I, I, I direct designers in, in like digital design. And, you know, no matter how much guidance you give, there's sometimes limitations to what someone can do, um, and, and which, which are kind of hardwired in a way. So you've got to f realize that, I think, otherwise you can get frustrated. Oh, we could do a whole show just on this because it's incredibly complicated in some ways, and uh, I, I think about it all the time. Um, some 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 artists that you will see have done great work will do not as great work for you because, uh, for me, because I haven't yet understood that the level of input they need and the amount of ownership they do their best work under, mm. which is kind of what I was talking about with Doug. Doug Doug's a smart guy and way more than just an artist, so he's thinking about all kinds of stuff. And if he sought something through and given it to you on a silver platter, he doesn't he doesn't want to hear, you know. But it's supposed to have four arms and it has two. I learned so much uh, working with the Goodman Games crew, both from Joseph and some of the, uh, the other writers that are friends of mine, like Michael Curtis and Harley Stroh and uh, Brendan LaSalle, because at Goodman Games, uh, I, I, this happens all the time, but I'll describe a situation that happened to me. Uh, a MCC module I wrote is called the, uh, the that it's called the Warlords of Ataz. Mm -hmm. In the art direction for the cover, I had a description of the mounts that the bad guys ride, exactly as I had envisioned them in my own head, except in words. And the cover was assigned to Peter Mullen, who I adore. Oh yeah. Every everything I see of his, I just damn love. And, He's great. Uh, Peter just ignored that and did this six-legged zebra-striped um, <laughs> tiger thing for the cover painting. And I went, oh, that's so much better. And I went into the manuscript and rewrote my description in the module to match his cover. Oh, that's so, cool. That's so cool. that's that, my that, attitude. Best idea wins. If you know an yeah. artist comes back with something that's not what I asked for and it's better, that's, that's not just okay. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I guess also you have to be think about it in an in a, in objective way. For you to change that four-legged thing into a six-legged zebra, it just involves changing a few words. <laughs> For him to to change it back into a four-legged creature involves doing an entirely new drawing. So I, I guess there's also that that equation maybe to to, to put in your head. But it, it shows a very. I think that's that's a really um, a good attitude. Uh, a sense of shared responsibility for the creation, and 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 that you know those collaborations are very. It, uh, do you find that they're they're easy to to get going in most cases, or or is it this I don't know lightning in a bottle situation where you just get lucky to find someone you can really work with well? I mean, some of both, and there's an attrition rate. Um, you know, uh, the the uh, the determination I made to each one of my books that I'm doing now to recruit and start out with some fresh uh, artists, that doesn't always work out, obviously. How could it? Um, you know, sometimes uh, they don't know how to hit a deadline or something else, and it's my job to try and teach them because I'm aspiring to operate as professionally as I can, even though it's just me. And uh, But it's so worth it when that lightning in the bottle happens. There's a uh, uh, artist I'm using down named Ala Fedorova, and I met her first across the gaming table at my con games. Um, 
Mm. And uh, a game hole con or two ago, her and her husband were over with the younglings having drinks while me, Tim Kask, and Mark Miller were over in the other corner being old men. And she had to get herself tanked up enough to invite me over to say, hey, I'd like to do some art in your next book. And I had already seen her posting stuff on social media. So I knew she had the talent and the goods. And I'm like, you're hired. You know, let's go. And uh, she's turned into one of my favorite artists to use. And what has she worked on for you specifically? Which, which um, she had uh, uh, a lot of pieces in the uh, last book I did, uh, "Fight This Mutant." Mm. She wasn't the cover artist, was she? No, you... no. Those those covers are uh, manipulated photographs mm. from uh, a, a, a. I don't want to say say this wrong because he's not a cosplayer. A guy down in Florida that I stumbled across who does like Hollywood level. Um, creations of armor post-apocalyptic armor and helmets and costumes and all kinds of things you could take it straight from his studio and go make a movie yes i i i was aware that they were photographic or at least treated photographs because um i looked into it when you you were posting some stuff about it and then i i sought out the artist and, and had a look at look at his website um and, guy's um, name is brian cargyle he's fantastic yeah and very they, young too i think he's all of like 27 or 28 very striking, um, very um, atmospheric. Also, completely unlike anything I've ever seen on a gaming cover. <laughs> well, you asked me a question: how many, how many times does an artist come back and and exactly match what's going on in my head? Well, Brian Cargill was down there doing that before I found him. You know, when I think of my particular flavor of, you know, appendix end based post apocalyptic, this is way ten thousand years from now future. Brian was already down there doing it, and I saw mm. his stuff and went, "Oh yeah, that's it right there." Yeah, um, it's interesting. I suppose there there is a bit of a um, there, there is a sort of a genre of that of people making and and dressing in these ways. I, I suppose you could say that Burning Man and 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 some of the sort of early sort of rave um, collective experimentation people building these kind of robot dinosaurs and dressing in all kinds of w weird ways, futuristic ways. There's kind of like a there's a there's a definite aesthetic there. I I, I I strongly recommend anyone to go and check it out. It really is interesting. Um, one of the artists that I really love, of course, being a white dwarf reader, is Russ uh, Nicholson. Um, oh my God! And he, he got and and Joe Joe calls me up one day and says, "Oh, I got Russ Nicholson for the MCC book. What do you want him to draw?" And I'm like, uh, <laughs> "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> um yeah he's he's such a such a wonderful artist uh he's 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 british isn't he and and um getting on a bit now i think as well um but uh yeah his work i i, I always loved his work in white dwarf and um and his work in in mutant crawl classics is amazing i love the one with the um the healer the, the, the guy lying on the bed and <laughs> being fed some weird concoction probably not going to help him much but we'll see yeah that's the that's that's those are among my favorite things where you just, uh, I mean, they say never meet your heroes. And sometimes that's true, but it's been more my experience as, as I have uh, come up in the industry to run into people and have it be the opposite where it's somebody that I idolized and they just turn out to be a regular uh, dude or woman. Mm, mm. I only met Margaret Weiss a couple of years ago and she's just a lovely human being. She's wonderful. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard interviews with her. Um, there was one podcast somewhere, I can't remember which one it was, where, where Russ Nicholson was actually interviewed, and it was really great. Um, I can't remember um, what podcast it was, but it was so nice, because I'd never heard him speak before, or his ideas are really fascinating. Now, a, a better example is Larry Elmore, who, you know, as, as I was learning to play, became one of the artists, and just in my own head, he's revered. And then I go to a North Texas con, and he's outside smoking a cigar, 
the smoking barrel with me and starts telling, you know, old gaming stories, you know, and he's a Kentucky boy as it works out too. So, you know, he was gregarious, friendly, open, told hilarious stories. Mm. I mean, so, you know, I, I'm just um, a very like emergent little podcaster in the in the community, and I'm you know I've only been doing it for about about um, six months now. It's, it's something very new to me. I don't even know really why I got into it, but I'm really enjoying it, and and um, it's been a great um, honor and pleasure for me to, to to start like interacting with people who are involved in the games industry. I I would never myself ever. Uh, um, you know, consider like trying to do anything there. It just doesn't feel like I, you know, I'm 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 not really in any like way ready to do something like that. But you know, I I I'm a creative person and I run games and I um I write my own adventures and I run games at con. So you know, I do what I do and that's enough. But but it's been so wonderful to actually get a chance to meet people in in the gaming industry, people that I've admired for a long time and people that have done really great stuff and um like yourself and. Um, and what struck me constantly is is the total um, humility and lack of pretension and lack of lack of ego and just the general niceness of everyone. Um, I know it's not universal <laughs> in the games in, in the gaming community, but Lord knows it's not universal. <laughs> but certainly, all the creators I've met have been wonderful people. Um, now. Well, that brings me back to Tim Cass because mm. of old, the old guard. He happens to be the one that lives 15 miles away from me. And you were having me talk about Marvin the Mage coming back as a webcomic. That's how I re-met Tim. Tim mm. was just some guy I knew from the early 80s until uh, 2010. And um, one of our game stores had a local author day. And that same writer buddy of mine was now doing his own webcomic and his own books. And he invited me to sit at the table with him and Marvin the the webcomic I was doing was only like five episodes old time I'm like sure why not in walks Tim Cask and I'm like hey remember <laughs> me from coming in and hassling to publish my stuff and he's like uh no not really and I'm like do you remember who knocked you out of the ace of aces tournament at sissy con 83 oh yeah that little puke that was me <laughs> I guess he's one of the elder statesmen uh now Tim isn't he uh yeah, and now we—I mean, that was ten years ago. We remet and became fast friends. Yeah. So, um, in the last sort of fifteen minutes or so, because I, I try and keep these to about an hour, I would like okay. to dive in a little bit into Mutant Crawl Classics. Because, as I said, I love the game. Um, Thank you so much. Um, I it it has this quality about it. Um, now, I know obviously core mechanics-wise, it's quite based on Dungeon Crawl Classics. It's, it's, it's mechanically kind of similar around, uh, around how you um, build a character and, and, and how you can, you know... You know the what, funnel, the whole deal. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, and I'd never played Dungeon Crawl Classics, and now I really should go back and play that as well because I, 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 you know, I like that, that structure and that system. Um, but what, for me, is wonderful about it is the sense, the evocation of, of the setting and the... And the, and the the, just the world that you've created and, and you sketch it out in a not in a very comprehensive way but there's enough pieces there that you can imagine almost everything else which which I think is a wonderful thing to have done because that creating that sense of immersion in in a different world I think is really hard in in science fiction how, how did you tell me about how you how you achieve that I swear you're you're gonna turn my head if you keep on but uh uh well, I, thank you, because there's nothing any game designer on earth appreciates more than someone just picking up on the beats they're laying down. And the uh, 
you know, uh, Munich Classics also been criticized for the same things that you like about it. And the design decisions were all intentional. My job was to uh, create a sort of uh, spine of a setting that would allow as wide an audience as possible to then go interpret it the way they want to, you know, which is fine by me because everybody has a different post-apocalypse. Um, mm. The uh, through line for me was uh, very intentionally based on um, an old Jack Kirby comic called Commandy, Last Boy on Earth. Of course. And a lot of the old Pulp Fiction, like uh, Brian Aldous and uh, other guys whose names are slipping my head right now. Some of the stuff that Gary put in the uh, Appendix N literature where there was a sense at the time, a lot of that was written where there weren't terms for science fiction and fantasy. It was all just genre, mm. you know? And so there mm. can be, you know, magic on Barsoom and elder gods and Lovecraft or cosmic beings. And it's, it's all a mishmash and that's my groove. And I wanted to, and also a little bit influenced by Jack Francis, the dying earth where this is way in the future, you know? So there's not tanks and guns and gas masks. This is a much sunnier apocalypse where, you know, the planet's, trying to heal itself up and it's just a riot of you know hothouse jungles and weird mutations mm. it's very pulpy mm. and mm. and i would be negligent not to mention that even that aspect although i did my version of it is uh what is part of the magic joseph brought the dungeon called classics put the mystery back in a game genre that we all think we know so well now yeah i i think that's a very um that's a very good way to frame it because one of the key pleasures I, I think in it is is discovery is is like finding stuff out that and 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 you start your players in this very naive uh, your, your players characters in this very naive state they don't understand anything and and i think it works best when they buy into that and they don't try and figure out where everything is as players because obviously it's not that difficult to figure out what this long metal tube that that fire comes out of the end is but as if you're playing your character um, as that naive primitive, then it would be this wonderful m discovery and, and probably scary and terrifying and, and liable to, to harm you as much as help you. And, and I think that's, that, that's what's great about that game style. And I, and I suppose it's, it's there in Gamma World as well, in Metamorphosis Alpha, that they're the, they're the sort of ur-texts <laughs> for MCC. I guess they, and, and, and also Barrier Peaks, you know, with the, um, with the flow chart, the, 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 the tech Flowchart. Yeah, 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 you know. yeah. I, I had mentioned your podcast is named after my single favorite D and D module, mm. and uh, and uh, although it's written by Gary Gygax, it's 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 all James Ward's ideation with the uh, Metamorphosis Alpha, who is one of my all time gaming heroes. And uh, I love the to think about the things you're thinking about. Like I I wanted to run Metamorphosis Alpha back in the day for a long time, but here's how I chose to do it. I ran Gamma World instead. And after a year of a Gamma World campaign, I had the players trip across a transmat unit, basically a teleporter, mm. you know, dork around with it like you know they're going to, and then they were teleported to another unit that suddenly wasn't in the post-apocalyptic Appalachian Mountains. It was in a jungle. So they're like, oh, we just got teleported to another part of the continent. No, they were, from that point <laughs> forward, on uh, the Starship Warden and didn't know it for like yeah. a campaign year. Fantastic. That that's how you play Metamorphosis Alpha because the players didn't know they were on a starship. Yeah, I mean, you're building up that big reveal, aren't you? When they get to a big piece of glass, look into it, and all they see is the black inky void with lots of pinpricks of light. <laughs> that that when that happened, that was the best game ever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you must have been dying waiting for that to happen. <laughs> oh, I'm, I I have a, 
I'm really a nice GM in person, but I have a reputation for being a bastard. I, I had him find a tribe that was worshiping the eye of God, and they had to go into a cave and one by one and make a fear save to come mm. back out and be able to report that all they saw was a window to the stars. Yeah, fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. Um, so how do you... Um... It requires quite a lot of the of the of the game master though to to come up with these descriptions of technology that that is is still trying to keep it mysterious. Um, it, of course, it's a lot easier to say you pick up a, a blaster gun, but um, w- w- was or that or it's a rod with a handle mm. and a thing sticking out, and everybody goes, "Oh, that's a pistol." Yeah, exactly. So, w- what are your um, what are your top tips for for keeping <coughs> the mystery then in, in in a kind of post apocalyptic setting? How, how do you do it? Oh, um, I think I wrote a little table in the into the actual game rules, as I recall. But uh, my approach is just to uh, raise it to an abstract level um, mm. and refuse to say uh, it's a it's a rod, it's a stick, you know, it's a mm. rock. A lot of things are just rocks and big rocks oh it's a big rock and it seems like it has gems embedded on one surface that's um flatter than the rest of it and hovering above that seems to be some air that's very hard air you can't poke your finger through it Mm. what do you do i love that i think that for me that that is the best metaphor in in the descriptions that you gave was that was the solid air or hard air because that's exact if you've never seen glass or anything transparent before it would be incomprehensible. It'd be like, why can't I put my hand through this bit of air? <laughs> and, I'm and a little out of practice because I haven't run a regular campaign of it like we did when we were playtesting it. I run convention games, and I have an unfortunate tendency to knee-jerk into the long, complicated description of a con game, which is not what you're there for. You're there to see how much of the adventure you can have fun and cram it in four hours. Yeah. I have, I have to back off of it. But yeah, I just try and come up with a laundry list of uh, creative, organic solutions. Yeah, it, um, sh- it shot light like the pink of the rising sun, you know. Mm, and I love the um, descriptions of all the computer panels as jewels, just glowing jewels, because that's that's really uh, poetic and lovely, and that's how how you would see it. Be like this, wow, this almost like glittering cavern of jewels down below. But um, the uh, as much of it is actually fun, you know. You can get you can take it too far and get annoying with it. Tim has a story when uh, Gary was running them through a Metamorphosis Alpha playtest, where they spent most of a night figuring out some stairs because Gary described them in such obtuse ways they couldn't <laughs> figure out as players that they were just stairs. Yeah, <laughs> yes. that might be too far. Yes, you see, yeah, you see a ridged accordion-like structure. Um, at an angle, <laughs> I don't know. Can't imagine how you would how you confuse people describing stairs, but um, but that's kind of funny. Um, the um, what was I going to say? Yeah, there's there's quite um, in in amongst the podcasts that I'm sort of a part of the community. There's there's been this kind of theme going on uh, about um, the the trying to actually play games where your characters do not have a modern sensibility and how difficult that can be and sometimes the system and the setting doesn't help you do that because quite often what people fall back on is um, just playing the characters as a modern person because that's what they know and it's the easiest thing to do um, it is quite hard to make a character or play a character that thinks in a completely different way to the way you would um, it's like trying to play an alien or you know um, a Cthulhu god or something it's it's not it's not an easy thing to do and I think that that you you're you're you definitely are pushing the the, the whole setting and the characters and the and the and the, uh, the objects and everything towards that play it like not like a human a, a contemporary human would think 
Well, I'm just suggesting that that's a really fun way to play, and here's how I do it. But I have no big deal about. I mean, if you if you, you want to run your game, you know, completely satirical or with you know stop sign shields and McDonald signs and everything's a joke, that's a okay by me. And uh, you know, table chatter is different from role playing. But I will say that when every once in a while at a convention game, I have an outstanding you know RPG or show up at the table and they start role playing. You know that. 30th century hothouse jungle dwelling shaman and feathers beads and you know some cybernetic armor and they'll start telling me what they want to do and express it in the true terms that their character would do and i'm like you just got a point of luck <laughs> yeah <laughs> you 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 are you are cruel but also generous at times you're a, you're a capricious god um <laughs> i'm but... definitely not cruel except that i love to create situations in which uh, uh less uh informed uh player could commit suicide happily <laughs> yes did, did you did you um did you write the sky high tower um adventure was that yes one yes of yours as well um yeah because obviously there's plenty of opportunities to die horribly in that and of course it's a funnel as well so um so but it is it is unforgiving for sure um if, if you actually come out of that with any i i i was very i i, I took pity on them at the end because they did manage to get into the into the flying um the hover car um and i and i um i gave them a little bit of extra luck to to try and stop it from crashing into the into the ground but um but uh, well, well it, done you know yeah, fair's fair yeah yeah i yeah because that there's some tough rolls you got to make when you're dealing with with high tech stuff it, it it is quite punishing but but very amusing at the same time well, that's one of the wonderful things about Dungeon Crawl Classics and by mirror example, Mutant Crawl Classics, if you've not played, if somebody's listening and you've not played any of them, you're, you'll hear the talk on social media, you know, it's a swingy system, you know, it's crazy, it's this, it's that, but both games are written with uh, the, uh, you know, uh, spectrum results in mind. You have a luck mechanic in there by which you can mitigate the swinginess. And, and several other things built into the game. So it doesn't it, it doesn't always play as ridiculously as its reputation would indicate. Mm, mm. And there's something... Now, I know this is not unique to MCC, because obviously it came from DCC, but the, the, the zero-level funnel is a fascinating um, way to play. Because um, obviously it... It can. It means you can just experience all these ridiculous deaths again and again and again, but keep playing. So it's really fun in that sense. Um, as long as you, I, I get it, and I didn't. <laughs> you know, when when DCC first came out, and we all sat down to play with it, uh, I was a player. I wasn't running anything. You know, and uh, we're going to do a funnel, and I had it explained to me. And inside my head is just a calliope circus of that's bullshit. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and then uh, I went through the adventure, squeaked a guy through, had a fantastic time, and went on to become addicted to Funnel Adventures, where that's all I wanted to play. Mm. Oh, they're, they're so different and so fun. Um, as long as everyone buys in, as long as people don't get annoyed, because you're going to, you know, what often happens, I find, and I haven't run a lot of them, but someone will just get really unlucky and they'll lose three of their four characters right off the bat or something, and they'll be, like, looking really miserable down at the, <laughs> the table. But you've got to say, look, it's cool. That, that you can get more. You're not going to be out of the game or anything like that. So I love that about it. But of course, what it does is it means you you, you don't really identify much with the characters. They're just these kind of um, vehicles to ride into the ground kind of thing. Um, although, although, well, until you, you squeak one through, and, yes. and then that's your dude. Yeah. 
and you you probably love that dude more than any other dude you've ever created because he survived <laughs> uh, well you know what else can happen i uh, uh my buddy rick hall will run uh, dcc for us often on like free rpg day and halloween and christmas and It'll be a random group of people assembled to play. And sometimes the table chemistry is funny. You get a lot of overcautious players. Mm. And you need a guy who will go up and poke stuff. And yeah. if you only have one of those at the table, he will burn through three or four level zeros quick. And I'll, in Rick's games, that will tend to be me. If I'm at a table with a lot of cautious players, I'll go ahead and poke the bear. And mm. uh, the last one Rick ran us through, I blew through all my guys but one of them was a farmer with a duck and we negotiated how i would continue to play that duck and that duck got through the funnel amazing with one hit point amazing what 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 character class did it become at the end uh a friend of mine named carmen had a wizard that squeaked through so the duck became her apprentice okay or her uh familiar perfect perfect um yeah um what what is the um genesis of the funnel do you know did it did it, um, was it a completely original idea by Joseph Goodman or, or was it kind of other? Oh, other no, 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 not at all. There were okay. people who played around with that idea before. I can't remember the name of it, but there was a D&D uh, adventure written for uh, zero level characters. And I can't remember if it was TSR or one of the other D20 companies. Right. Um, and, and, and was it saying you had to have multiple characters each? Uh, I, I guess, actually, if you think back to the early days, people had multiple characters anyway, didn't they, um, back in the really early days? My very first session of D&D ever, my first DM said, okay, I'm going to need you to roll up uh, two characters. And I'm like, why do I have to roll up two? And he's like, you'll find out. <laughs> yeah, and of course, everyone had hirelings and henchmen back then. And, and I think it became more... Uh, over time, it became this solo heroic concept, really. So it's it's fluctuated, but I, lo- I love the fact that it's come back. Um, um, did you also write um, Hive of the Overmind? Was that also one of yours? Uh, it, that I can tell you the whole unexpurgated version of that. I certainly had a hand in it. That started out as a uh, I had a co-DM when I was running my regular campaign writing MCC because I would get burnt out after seven or eight weeks in a row. I got one of my players would take over like Rob Coons used to do for uh, Gary and it was in my universe it would just I gave him a section of it and he would run games for a while and he came in one day with uh, uh, something uh, very much like Hive of the Overmine mm. a fellow named James Smith and his initial conceit was just this is the MCC reskinning of Sailors on the Starless Seas the Harley Stroh adventure and oh, his right. version was very much like that I got his permission to uh change it and use it as one of the initial mcc adventures then ran out of time to write it myself and i i hope i'm not wrong as i recall julian burnick took it over so you know there are graphs in there i wrote julian wrote most of it and and in turn retransformed it himself yeah i love that adventure um i ran that that's the one i ran at dundracon and um i was just um you can't run it in, well at least i couldn't run it in four hours i tried but i had to like i had to like do this sort of quantum like i, I basically did this sort of teleportation removed a huge chunk of it so they ended up going back to the to the queen and having that as the finale they they never made it down to the um to the ai and the and the and the half robot you know the the, the robot uh, rebel in the in the room it's got some lovely little vignettes and set pieces and i think that that is very much the feeling i think in in the event in the adventures they have these really creative little moments in them um they tell a nice story overall but it's almost like you go in to experience these weird things and try and figure out what the hell they are um i I love that about it um well i'll give you some inside baseball on goodman games um mm. the uh the metric that joseph sets for all the uh adventure writers is uh 
no more than 5,000 words, and you have to be able to play it in four hours. And right. virtually no one can do it <laughs> or chooses to do it. I don't know which. Yeah. We all sit down and go, okay, only 5,000 words, and you have to be able to run it in four hours. And then, you know, a module later, it's nothing like that. Yeah, I think I think um, I think Hive probably eight hours would be a good good time to, to good time span for it. But um, it depends how focused you are, of course. Um, yeah. So um, tell me then also, how much time do you spend writing out those those tables for the mutant powers? Is how much time does that take? Because there's a lot of work, and, and all the all the spells, let's say in DCC, for instance. But the, you know that that idea that having to come up with all of these different outcomes for each power. But is that hard work? It must be, surely. Uh, I don't know if I'm a good metric for that, because on the one hand, I'm an extremely slow typist and writer because I suffer from mild dyslexia, and I don't even know how to type properly. I type with about six or five fingers. That's better the, than me. <laughs> the uh, idea part of it, though, that's just the way my brain's wired. I open the idea drawer, and there's always ten more ideas in there. Right, right. So, so you, you just it just comes out fully formed in a way and it's just a question of actually getting down on paper is the slow bit um i i might have had too much gin and drugs as a young man <laughs> but my brain just spins up random stuff when i need it yeah because i i think that is what is so wonderful about both this and dcc and um is is that um it's because it's not going to be the same every time you do something that there is this chaos factor there that makes it really exciting to play i think well i've gone along with it and certainly brought my own original spin to it but that's where the credit goes to joseph goodman because those ideas they're in dcc of mercurial magic where i'm a wizard with magic missile you're an elf with magic missile they're not the same exact spell for either of us Mm. you know mine looks like lightning talons shooting at you and yours looks like uh something else a, a glowing arrow yeah. Those little tiny things make all the difference in the world when you're playing. And and that's fantastic because I think one of the problems with D&D as a, as a whole, and I love D&D, I, don't get me wrong, is that magic doesn't feel magical. It feels like physics. <laughs> it's like it's completely predictable, pretty much every spell. It's very predictable what's going to happen. As long as you do it right, you will get this effect. And that's not really what magic should be like and certainly not what mutant powers should be like. Um, well, obviously, you and I are very much on the same page with similar tastes, but I want to frame this in that it's uh there's there's two things going on there's uh rule simulation and play style preference Mm. you and i can have a super intelligent logical rational discussion about you know formula x versus formula y how well do either those simulate this thing that happens in real or fantasy life that's just a discussion but play style preference is all more or less hardwired into our heads Mm. and um you and i are on the same beam We, we we like this thing that we're talking about other you know play style other people with other play style preferences you know there's nothing wrong with uh you know loving the hell out of pathfinder you know wanting to go in with a you know a member of avengers endgame team at first level and just bulldoze your way through a dungeon i'm exaggerating for dramatic effect but Mm. that's a play style preference and that's all fine yeah gaming have fun and and look i still run D &D. I mean i i i stopped for about six months recently because i wanted to try a lot of other stuff and my real current jam is called cthulhu actually which where magic is just this very crazy thing to try and attempt anyway um but i have gone back to D &D and i do appreciate the fact that um that consistency allows you to build these very interesting um like encounters where where everything is kind of in imbalance in a way let's say but not not i don't mean necessarily challenge wise but you 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 know you can use your spells and your powers to overcome a challenge put in front of you in this in this very 
strategic or tactical way. And I can see the pleasure in that. A lot of people get a lot of pleasure out of it. And I, I have nothing against it, of course. I can go back and forth. Uh, yeah. Uh, our uh, local game store owner ran Exposition at the, to the Barrier Peaks for us a few summers ago. And uh, first three players to show up to generate their characters got 12th level characters. So, buddy, I was first in line to get my 12th level magic user. And then he goes, and you have 250,000 gold to spend on magic items and equipment. And he just said that to the wrong dude. Because <laughs> it's all still hardwired in my head from 30 years ago. I know we rock. We rocked through that place. We stomped it. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I loved it, but um, I've never run it. I really need to run it. I mean, I had it, uh, but I, I didn't run a lot of games when I was when I was younger because we we just didn't play that much. I just read mostly. And, and well, I don't we, want to be a commercial for Joseph Goodman, but you you've got the perfect answer now. If you can get it where you are, they uh, have done one of those big thick books reprint books that's authorized by watsi for expedition to barry peak so there's the old original version in the front which is you know like of its time it's it's hard to run from the module i would think for a modern player yes the, the but map, in the back is a 5e version of it mm, the original ready map to go was, was quite confusing i seem to remember the original map they had um it was hard to work out where the corridors and the walls and the doors were. I seem to remember, maybe maybe I'm misremembering it, but because um, it was done in this very unusual style, because it was obviously, spoiler alert, it's a spaceship. So, <laughs> so it, it wasn't drawn like a regular dungeon, I seem to remember. Is that, was that how Oh, yeah, yeah. Like calling that out to the players and having them hand map it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Because that's what we did back then. It was like, yes, so that it goes north 30 feet, and then there's a T, a T junction that goes left and right, and you've got to draw it. <laughs> I just ran that adventure at the last con I was at in February before everything shut down, and uh, I was running it for MCC. So I gave them fifth-level MCC characters, and I just went ahead and threw Once they were on a level, I just threw the map down. Okay, yeah. that's that's what it looks like. Yeah. No, that, where, you, where do you go? That's definitely the way to do it. Um, that's how I play with my four-year-old daughter because she loves looking at the pictures. I, I play, I, I run D&D for my four-year-old daughter and she, she's just a pure murder hobo. She's, she's, oh. she's, she's already there. Just she never negotiates, just straight in with the long sword. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's the reason I don't mind 10 and 12-year-olds at my table because you don't have to teach them how to murder hobo. It just no, comes naturally at that age. Absolutely natural. Um, I, I do want to keep talking for a little bit longer. I, I, I know I'm at my, my own self-imposed time limit. Maybe I'll edit down. A bit. I did warn you at the no, beginning. I'm a no, long talker. No, I apologize. No, no, it's both of us. Um, I love, again, I'm, I'm fanboying like crazy. I love the maps in MCC um, because of that fusion between a map and artwork and information and a setting that all comes across. Is that something also a sort of DCC, um, you know, it very Style much comes well. from Joseph Goodman's uh, initial art direction and as carried on by those of us who, uh, you know, worked for him. Um, and it's all down to the artist, um, almost uh, entirely uh, Doug Kovacs and Stefan Pogue. And I think Doug did it first. Doug pioneered that sort of isometric, very arty, illustrative dungeon map in the initial set of DCC adventures. Um, Stefan Pogue stepped right in and did his versions, which are equally awesome. And... Mm. Uh, you know, then I show up and go, yeah, just do some more of that for me. Yeah. Um, I mean, they are, it is very clever because they're, they're, they're both clear and evocative at the same time, which no matter how beautiful uh, the Watsi maps are, and they are beautiful, they're, they, they're, they're sort of falling in between. And I, I think it's one, the fact that you're doing them in, in very clear black and white, and two, um, that that um, they kind of give you this sort of illustra illustration of the of the thing as well as the overhead 
you know, in, in certain places, it really helps. I, I think it's very smart. I love them, and 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 mapping, illustrating maps is not my forte. So, yeah, it's a it's a skill, isn't it? Um, well, look, uh, as as I said, I I, I could get, go into go into more and more depth. I've actually actually grabbed my MCC book off the shelf just to um, <laughs> just to remind me of certain things about it. Um, so, um, I suppose one of the one of the questions, the final question I would have is, do you? Th- do you see it as a system where you could run a, an ongoing two, three-year campaign, or or is it more more suited for short adventures and and, and maybe stitching a few together? And um, you know, I'll step out and be devil's advocate on this one because there 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 is a problem built into both systems and uh, a campaign certainly. Uh, I mean, you know, with a with a judge or DM who or GM who's willing to put the work in, sure, no problem. Uh, adventure to adventure. Um, into a campaign and my, my metric for when I have a campaign is when I show up and the players have questions and things they want to do it's not just Jim laying out the adventure for them so I, I've done it so I know it's possible up to about 5th level there's a power break in both games at 3rd and 5th level and at 5th level the players become incredibly hard to challenge and kill because the power metric if it were old AD&D it's almost half so that's about 10th level mm. in an AD&D game uh, I mean it might be second level in 5e for all I know how many death saves do you get I'm sorry I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding around but uh so 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 first through fifth level and a campaign that lasts a year or two easy peasy um, uh, but neither uh, rule set is built to accommodate the levels it goes all the way up to I've the highest level character I've ever played in a DCC game is maybe I want to say six or mm. seventh. I'm trying to. There's a Harley Stroh adventure with giants in it, and the name is slipping my mind. And I think you play that one with seventh level characters, and that's where the seams start to show. Mm. And I and and there and if you just look on the Goodman Games site, there's no ninth and tenth level adventures yet. Mm. So that's an area that uh, both games could ex- could evolve and expand into, but it's not there yet. Right. So does that sound fair? I, I, I think it does. I, I, I think that that inevitably, you know, it hasn't been. I, I suppose it hasn't. When you don't have an army of, of sort of play, te- I don't know how many playtesters you had or, or what the evolution was. It seems like these are more intimate affairs, <laughs> the, the Goodman game stuff, than, than clearly than Wizards or, or whatever, where they've kind of, and even there it starts to, in, in D&D 5e, it starts to break down when you get to higher levels, I find, anyway. But, um, yeah, it's... Right, it's, and in principle, it's so much fun to play the lower levels anyway, you just go back into it again. But uh, I, I think what you're asking is, Goodman Games does a tremendous amount of playtesting. My first right. DCC yeah. game was a guy I met through this, named Rick Hull, who was Joseph's designated playtester, GM here in Cincinnati and uh, for MCC it wasn't just me there were some other playtest groups going but I ran a campaign from before there were rules for mm. I don't know three or four years as mm. I developed the game mm. Mm. until 5th level and then they were bastards to kill yeah <laughs> you've got to be able to kill them um, I'm like oh that's a TPK if they go that way and they go that way and the, the uh, shaman pulls their butts out of the fire for like the second time that week and to me, it certainly seems that the, the way that you constructed the rules, it wasn't about creating this finely honed machine. It was about creating a game that was fun to play and, um, you know, that, that crazy stuff could happen and, and it would be a uh, like a fodder for your imagination as you're playing. So 
um, I, I think it's a very different objective to what the wizards are trying to do, which is to create this very consistent experience from table to table, and and you know make sure that that it is something that people can can play um, longer term campaigns, even though they tend to stop at tenth level anyway. But um, well, given everything we just talked about, that was my point earlier: is both mm. game systems are much more balanced than they appear on the surface. Right. Okay. Well, um, that's. That's that's good to know. I mean, maybe I'll, I will try putting together a longer campaign and seeing how it how it works out. I don't think I don't think I've ever played with characters that were or run it for characters above like second or third level anyway. So it would be fun to to try. Well, it. I'll give you I'll give you the Wampler challenge because I grew up I was fortunate to grow up in the days of do it yourself. You know, when we started playing, there weren't modules and campaign settings and gazetteers and all that stuff. So we just made everything up our own ourselves. Maybe uh, the world is just waiting for you to figure out how to run a high-level DCC or MCC campaign. I, I think that is a great challenge, and I will, I will take that on. I, I need to get my players to... I, I need to get them to kick their, their um, D&D bug again, because I keep trying to steer them to other games. But, um, but anyway, look, um, I just want to finish up with... Um, let's talk about Scientific Barbarian for, for a second. Um, how, long, how long is the campaign running for? Um, when can people, uh, 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 you know, contribute to the Kickstarter until... Uh, Help me factor in what the delay from our recording this to broadcast is. Well, it is now the 13th of July. Um, I reckon this will go up in about a week. So, okay. Scientific Barbarian Kickstarter ends on July 28th. It's already funded. In fact, it's double funded and headed for quintuple and whatever the next one is uh, funding. It's a 6 by 9 digest size square bound fanzine with color cover in uh, black and white interior art. And although it's technically a fanzine, um, it's like DCC is technically a retro clone, but it's really not because I come from a publishing background. I'm making it as much like a proper game magazine as possible. Mm. So lots of high quality content and uh, at least in my end of the industries, some some wonderful uh, contributors. Uh, Levi Combs from Planet X Games, Skeeter Green, uh, formerly of Frog God Games, uh, Mike Stewart and Liz Stewart, who created the Victorious RPG um, uh, a, a little team, a little team I've put together of uh, fantastic artists. Uh, some of them you don't know, but they're great. And some of them are um, uh, Dan Smith, who did so much of the artwork in uh, GURPS for Steve Jackson's game. His art became the house style. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, fifteen bucks gets you in. So I mean, you know, you can't get two people through Taco Bell's drive-through <laughs> for fifteen bucks. Um, I'm already there. Um, well, look. Jim, it's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you so much, and, and, and thank you so much for giving me your time this morning. Um, um, I, good luck. With, I mean, you've already made your goals. Good luck with whatever other goals you've got for it, and I, and I really hope this becomes the first of, of a series. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Well, thank you, Andy. For it, It's been a pleasure uh, just being on the podcast, and thank you for having me. It's great to have a voice to go with the guy I already knew from social media. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny how these things work, isn't it? Okay, well, look, um, um, uh, hopefully we can talk again sometime sometime in the future when you've when you when you got um, more, more wonderful products for us all to enjoy. It's a date. It's a game we're role-playing. I'm a stranger and you're making mistakes. No one can hear your pleading The wind drowns out your screaming They'll never smell your